our attention this morning to Psalm 110 as we continue journeying through the life of David. This psalm was written shortly after David became king. As we've been journeying through David's life, so far most of David's life has been spent on the run, trying not to get killed from Saul who was plotting his murder. A couple weeks ago we saw Saul, that Saul died. David was anointed king. God gave him these tremendous promises that are still true for us today. And as David became king, he wrote this psalm declaring what his kingship meant, how it pointed to something greater. This passage of Scripture is the most quoted passage of Scripture in the New Testament. It's used by more authors and more times than any other passage of Scripture. And so let us read and find out and hear of God of David's psalm praising the Lord King Jesus. Read with me. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning and the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn And he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would send your spirit to give us insight into understanding And there's some things in this passage that are difficult, but Lord, that through it that we would walk away changed, understanding your work, the work that you have completed, the work that you are doing, and the work that has begun. Lord, we ask this in your son's name we pray, amen. I was in elementary school at the time, and I was in the courtroom. My brother and I were eyewitnesses to a case, and so we were waiting in the courtroom, And we were bored out of our minds. The the, the trial hadn't started yet. We were bored out of our minds. We've been sitting there. We had to get up extra early. We're waiting in the courtroom. My dad's there with us. And then all of a sudden, the front door swings open and the bailiff comes out and he shouts out, I'll rise for your honor. And boom, like a shotgun going off, my dad jumps up out of his his seat. Now, there's a couple things you need to know about my dad. Number one is that my dad... He kind of goes through life at an enjoyable pace, let's just say, okay? And so, like, if we're late somewhere, like, we just kind of enjoy the journey to get there when we get there, right? And different times in life, he just kind of enjoys things. In fact, I don't know if there had ever been a time when I ever saw my dad move as fast as he did on this particular occasion when the bailiff shouts, all rise for your honor, okay? And boom, he, he is up and out. By the way, he loves when I share a story about, about him. He, uh, he listens to these online, you know, come about Tuesday. So about Tuesday night, I'm going to get a phone call from my dad being like, wait a second. Um, so I don't particularly appreciate this one today. But he jumps up out of his seat. And, and for me, having seen that there weren't too many things that evoked such a response in my father, and I'm sitting there, and I'm watching this, and, I think, and I'm thinking to myself, I was bored out of my mind. He jumps out of his seat, and the thing that occurs to me is that if there is something 
that evoked such a response from my dad, who was the one who was, who was you know, provided guidance, who showed me how to respond, who showed me how to act, who showed me how to behave. If there was something that evoked such a response from him, I knew that I better pay attention and most likely I ought to probably do the same, at which point my brother and I both jumped to our feet not knowing why. As we turn to this psalm here in Psalm 110, we come to David who served as one of the greatest and most authoritative leaders of God's people. And while it may not seem it when we read this psalm as we did a couple minutes ago, But in this psalm, David is jumping to his feet. He is jumping out of his seat to tell others about the eternal king who is coming. And if there is something that could evoke such a response from one of the greatest leaders of God's people, if there is something in the psalm that the New Testament writers felt that it was more worth quoting this passage of Scripture than any others, If there is something that can evoke such a response, we better pay attention. We better invest the effort to understand exactly what's going on here. So where we find ourselves in this passage is this. David has recently become king. But David knew that in him becoming king, his kingship was simply a, a milestone to something greater, to a greater destination. His kingship pointed forward to a greater reality. His kingship was not so much about him, but it foreshadowed the greater and eternal king who would come and come one day. Now, this passage has some very profound truths for us, but it's going to require us to do some thinking as we dive into this. So I urge you to stay with me as we dive into this passage and we process through exactly what David is saying and why the New Testament writers felt that this passage was a pivotal passage for them to quote so many different times. So stay with me as we go through this. We're going to need to think through what's happening here. The first thing that David declares in this passage is that the work of the priest... The priest's work is finished. Let's dive in to understand this. David begins by saying, the psalm by saying, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, who is he talking about? He says, the Lord, that is the God of heaven and earth, the Lord eternal, Yahweh, the Lord says to my Lord, who is David's son, David's descendant, but yet who would be the the one who is the, the one that God appointed in fulfillment of the promise that God made to David. The Lord says to my Lord, David declares, even though he's David's son, he's greater than David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And here's what this eternal king, the descendant of David, is going to do. He says this, as a king, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And all of a sudden, despite it being about a king, he starts talking about the priesthood. And we get this guy named Melchizedek thrown in here. Now, who on earth is Melchizedek? Melchizedek is a very um, enigmatic figure. He is someone who is very important. He has a very important connection between the Old Testament and New Testament. But yet, he causes a lot of challenges because there's not much mentioned about him. Okay? In fact, he's only mentioned three times in Scripture. He's mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, which I'll reference in a minute. He's mentioned here in this passage in Psalm 110. And then he's also mentioned again in Hebrews chapter 7. But Melchizedek was a very unique person. And he was unique for three reasons. He was unique 
because, as Genesis 14 tells us, that he, Melchizedek, was the king of Salem. Salem uses the Hebrew's letters, well, S-L-M, which could also be pronounced shalom, which is the word for peace and actually the flourishing, harmony and flourishing. And so Melchizedek is known as the king of peace, and actually most likely he was king of the territory, which is now Jerusalem, where David was now reigning. And so Melchizedek was known as the king of peace. But his name was Melchizedek, which is a compound word of Melech and Zedek, which means king, Melech, Zedek, of righteousness. So Melchizedek was a unique king because he was the king of peace and he was the king of righteousness. That was the first thing. The second thing about him is that Melchizedek was also referred to in Genesis 14 as also being a priest of the Most High God. Now that's unusual because a priest and a king were two different jobs. They were distinctly different offices. They had distinctly different functions. The role of a priest was to rule over, um, the role of a king was to rule over his people. The role of a priest was to be, a mediate, to be a mediator between God and the people and between the people and God. And here, Melchizedek is both of these things. And as a priest, the work of a priest was arduous. Remember, priests were the ones who provided sacrifices, sacrificing lambs and bulls and goats and doves and pigeons. And in that work, it was arduous. It was slaughtering animals all day long for sacrifice to to atone for, to pay the penalty for people's sins, to give an offering for the wrong things that they had done. The other challenge of of being a priest was that their work was never finished because what they did was fundamentally insufficient because the sacrifices that they gave could never bring about forgiveness and could never fully reconcile people to God. All right. Watch out. (laughs) Um, So Melchizedek, one, he is the the king of peace, the king of righteousness. Also, he is the priest of the Most High God. And then what the text also tells us, or actually doesn't tell us, is that Melchizedek is a guy who comes out of nowhere. He just appears. He doesn't have a lineology. His dad wasn't, his parents weren't mentioned. He's not part of the biblical lineology. He just shows up out of the middle of nowhere. He is uniquely set apart as a king of righteousness and king of peace, uniquely set apart as the one who is a priest of the Most High God, and uniquely set apart as someone who comes out of the middle of nowhere. Again, you might be thinking, why does this matter? Well, stay with me as we continue to think through these, and I'll connect these dots together. What's happening in Psalm 110 is that King David foresees that there will come a day that God will fulfill the promise that God made to David, which we saw a couple weeks ago in 2 Samuel 7. That coming out of David, there will be a son of David who will be the eternal king. And this eternal king will be one who is in the order of Melchizedek, one who is uniquely set apart as a king of righteousness and king of peace, and one who is also uniquely set apart as a priest and who will serve as a priest forever before God and to do so eternally. Stay with me as we continue to connect the dots here. The book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7 declares that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Melchizedek. That Jesus Christ is David's greater son, the one who has been uniquely set apart 
as the king of righteousness and king of peace, the one who was the one who was fully God, fully man, never doing anything wrong, always doing right, never having any regrets in his life, never saying, oh, I wish I didn't say that. Oh, I wish I had done differently. He always did right. And not only is Jesus the eternal king, but he is the eternal priest, the one who unites God to his people and unites the people to God. Hebrews chapter 10, continuing to expand upon what Melchizedek has done and how Jesus is the fulfillment, Hebrews 10 declares this. Stay with me. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What Hebrews declares is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this. And when Jesus, as this perfect and perpetual priest, finished his works, his one sacrifice for all time, when Jesus was finished, he sat down. He sat down because his work was done. And he sat down because his work had been completed and completed, as Psalm 110 declared a thousand years before, that the Heavenly Father would say to him, sit at my right hand, because the work of the eternal priest is finished. Again, what does this have to do with you and me? Aside from some interesting Bible trivia, why does this matter? The reason why it matters is this, is because many of us live as if the work of Jesus Christ is not finished. As if the work of the priest, this eternal priest in the order of Melchizedek, uniquely set apart, as if his work is not perfect, is not finished, and is not complete. For many of us, when it comes to the sin and the things that we struggle with, the things that we do that we don't want to do, and the things that we want to do but we don't do, when it comes to the sin that we struggle with in our life, most of us view our sin kind of like housework, okay? The last couple of days, um, my wife was out of town. And every man knows what that means. She got home at 8 o'clock last night, right? Every man knows, knows what that means. It means that the day, the hours before my wife comes home, it is time to do what? Clean the house, right? Except I made this, I made this mistake yesterday. And I made the mistake was I started cleaning the house at 9 o'clock in the morning. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Why is that dumb? Because as soon as the house was clean, guess what happened an hour later? The house was a wreck, right? There was junk everywhere. Things were messed up. There was stuff on the floor. It was all, all over the place. And so a couple hours, I mean, 15 minutes before she got home, I mean, we just presented what it was like all weekend long, just this pristine, gorgeous little, this pristine house with everything being clean. But for many of us, you know, what we do with the challenge with our housework is that it never ends, Right? You get your house to a place where it's finally clean, everything's back in order, and what is the only option? For it to get messed up. And then what happens is the next day is you're cleaning your house again. And the next day, you're cleaning your house again. And then you sit down for a minute, and after you sit down, guess what you do? You get back up because your house is a mess again, right? And for many of us, that's the way we deal with our sin. Is that our sin is like something that's never done. We like get it tidied up for a little bit, minute. we get it tidied up for a minute, we wrestle with things. We're like, okay, it's good. And then all of a sudden it gets messed up again. And so we live out our life as if the work of dealing with our sin has not been finished. As if it has not been taken care of. As if it has not been completely and perfectly dealt with. 
And the way that this gets expressed in the Christian life, well, there are some churches that functionally teach that your sin's never really fully dealt with. And so the way that they teach that is what you need to do is, well, you need to come back to church every week. And the reason why you need to come back to church is so that your sins can be wiped away to that point. You need to take the Lord's Supper. You need to do these different things. Your sins will get wiped away. But guess what? It's like your housework. As soon as you, as soon as you get up, it's going to get messed up again. Other churches teach things like this. They'll say, well, you need to come to church every Sunday so you can have a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon you. Because as soon as you leave, you know, you know it's just kind of going to kind of wander away, and you need to come back to church so that, so that you can have a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit like the Holy Spirit ever departed from you in the first place. Okay? Let me give you a bit more graphic example of this whole thing. A couple of years ago, several of us went to the Philippines on one of our mission trips. And on that mission trip, we went to this region up in the northern section of the Philippines. We went there during Holy Week. And what happens during Holy Week, as you might have seen this on CNN or the BBC, is there's a whole throng of people that gets together on a pilgrimage and they flog themselves all day on Good Friday. And as they flog themselves, there's some who even go further and actually, yes, get, do actually get nailed to crosses. And they do it. And so they get into these long lines and, and they flog themselves for hours on end and they use something like this, which for the crowds that are being entertained with popcorn and balloons, really bizarre. Um, they also happen to sell little vendors coming by selling extra cat of nine tails just in the event that you wanted to take your shirt off and you also can join into the flogging line to pay for the sins that you have not yet dealt with in your life. And so the way that this thing works, it actually doesn't hurt all that much. But what it does is that these things beat your back and cause massive bruises so that your back swells with blood. And then they're, they're bamboo, so that it gets really sharp, like getting a grass cut, and the edges are sharp. And so what happens then is that after your back becomes like this giant balloon of blood, what happens is that eventually it bursts, and there's just blood running everywhere, and then they continue to walk through, flagging themselves through the street, flagellating themselves, some of them ultimately getting crucified at the end of it. And then blood gets splattered over everyone who is standing by and walking around. Well, why are they doing that? It's because they're dealing with guilt that's going on in their life. And they feel that the guilt that they've got in their life for somehow hasn't been paid for. And that because of the things that they've done wrong, there is something that they need to punish themselves so that they can pay for the sins that, that they have done. Punish themselves to make up for it. As if the work of Christ wasn't finished. As if the work of Christ wasn't perfectly complete. As if someone's personal beating of themselves could actually make up for the wrongs that they have done, could actually pay the penalty for their sin, as if these things could actually be accomplished. I wish we were different. I mean, how many of us? when we're wrestling with something that we've done wrong and we find ourselves doing it again and again, say, you know what, I'm not gonna, I can't go to God. Well, you know what, my life has been such a mess and so what I need to do first is, well, I need to get my life back together again. I need to, I need to get my life cleaned up before I'm ever gonna come to church. And maybe this is the day that you decide to come to church. For others of you, what happens is that you've got this, this struggle in your life that you're dealing with day in and day out. Maybe it gets better, your house gets cleaned for a little bit of time, and then it gets messed up again. And then your house gets cleaned for a little bit of time, and then it gets messed up again. 
like some of your sins in your life. And so you say, you know what, this time I'm not going to go to Jesus about this, and, and, and this is just so awful. I'm just going to sit here and wallow in how awful I've been and how awful the things that I've done are, how gross this is, and I'm going to feel really, really bad. I'm going to feel really, really bad about myself because I just, can't, I just can't bear to think about going and praying to God in the midst of this, having done this thing again and again. But our message to the people who are flogging themselves and our message that comes through this passage of Scripture here again today is that the work of the eternal priest, Jesus Christ, is finished. It is complete. It means that your sin has been paid for, that your debt has been paid, that your sin has been atoned for, and it is covered by the eternal priest. That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, one of his last words that he cried out is he said, It is finished. It was actually a, a, a word of business trends, an accounting term. It means that the debt has been paid in full. There is nothing else to be added. There is nothing else to be done. Your flogging yourself, your feeling bad about yourself doesn't do anything, only diminishes the work that has already been completed, that has already been finished in Jesus Christ. And when he completed his work, do you know what he did? He sat down. He sat down because his work was done, and it didn't get messed up again. And you in your own life and the struggles that you have and the challenges that you have, you go through, and you think, okay, I've sinned, I need to ask God for forgiveness. I've sinned, I need to ask God for forgiveness. But you know what? He's the one that knows all things. He knows your past, present, and your future. And when he died on the cross, not only has he died for the sins that you've already committed, but he died for the sins that you've yet to commit. He already knew them. And he already paid for it, and the work that Christ has done is finished. It is complete. There is nothing more to be added to it except to believe in him, to trust in him, and to trust in his work. The prophet Isaiah picked up on this theme. He said, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. He's saying the way to be made right with God, the way for quietness and strength, the way for salvation is to believe in what God has done and to rest in it, to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But what is most convicting about the Isaiah passage is Isaiah then says this, in quietness and trust is your salvation. I'm sorry, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were unwilling. Like there was a work that had been finished and completed on your behalf. But you were unwilling. You were saying, no, I'm going to figure it out myself. No, I'm going to pay for it myself. No, I'm going to make it up for it by being a really, really good person. I'm going to get my house clean. I'm going to get my house in order. And guess what happens when you wake up tomorrow? It's messed up again. But not so with the finished work of Jesus Christ. That once it is done, it is completed. And when it was completed, he sat down because there was nothing else to be done and there was nothing else to be added to it. He, Jesus Christ, has been uniquely set apart as the eternal priest in the order of Melchizedek. And his work is completed. The second thing that David is jumping up out of his seat to shout out to us is that not only is the priest's work completed in this man who has a dual function of priest and king, but also not only has the priest's work been completed, but the king's work will be completed. This psalm, there is this massive time gap between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. 
there is this time gap between the time when uh, David foretells of Jesus Christ a thousand years later. Jesus comes, born in a manger, fully God, fully man. Don't quite understand how that completely works. Lives out of his ministry, perfectly righteous, perfectly godly, perfectly holy. Dies on the cross, pays the penalty, it is finished. Rises from the grave, ascends into heaven, sends his Holy Spirit down in Pentecost. And then Jesus' return sometime later and has yet to come. And this psalm encompasses this whole scope a thousand years before Jesus was even born. And what the psalm says this, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Sit down until all of the enemies, your enemies have been subdued. And do you know what's going to happen when all of his enemies are subdued? He's going to get up. And when he gets up out of his chair, when the Father's work of putting all of Christ's enemies under his feet is completed, Jesus, who was sitting at his right hand until that was done, will get up and will lead the final charge to usher in the fullness of his kingdom. Verse 5 describes it. It says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Is that when Jesus gets up out of his throne and returns again, he will return to judge the living and the dead. And when he returns, he will crush those who are opposed to him and destroy all who stand in his way. His victory will be thorough. It will be decisive. It will be complete. And he will not stop until it is done. In fact, when he comes, he will only pause long enough to get a drink in the stream as he continues on his way. And when he has finished his victory, when the work of the king is completed, he will lift up his head as the victorious king over all of creation, as the victorious king over all other kings, over all enemies, over all authorities, over all demons, over all principalities, over all powers. Christ Jesus, the king, is the victor, and his work will be completed. Now, this is good news. Even though it says things like this, shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs of the wide earth. This doesn't really give you warm fuzzies, does it? I hope not. (laughs) I mean, the picture here is not of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. The picture here is not of this... Jesus that people create in their mind who is the celestial grandfather who just spoils you and gives you candy unending, who never says no, who's never upset when you do anything wrong, who just gives you more and more more and more stuff, whatever you want, this celestial doormat who just gives you more and more stuff. No, that's not the picture, is it? No, this is Jesus, the righteous king who brings justice, and he brings justice for the oppressed. He brings liberation for those who are in captivity. A couple of weeks ago, we at Cornerstone had a Friday night seminar here on human trafficking, talking about human trafficking here in Southern Maryland, throughout the D.C. metro region, how Maryland is a goldmine for human trafficking, as, as the Department of Homeland Security, the, the FBI agent, told us. Do you know what this passage means? Is that there is justice for victims of human trafficking. 
for those who are in bonded labor, for those who are forced as sex slaves. Every day in the news, we hear again of the slaughter of Christians across the globe, now many times at the hands of ISIS. Every week, we hear the story of more migrants, such as the migrants who are drowning in boats coming out of Eritrea, many of whom are Christians who are fleeing persecution. Do you know what people who are oppressed need? Do you know what they most want? It's not, they don't want warm fuzzies. They want justice. They want justice for their oppressors. They want liberation for their bondage. Do you know what people who've been wrestling under the burden of sin their whole life want? They want to be set free, to be all who God made them to be. And when King Jesus returns, he will bring that to completion. And so if you are one who is under the burden of oppression, The victory of Jesus brings great joy. If you are aligned with King Jesus, if he is the one who is your master, the one you have pledged your allegiance to, that day will bring great joy. If you are one who believes in him as your savior, the one who is the eternal priest who paid for your sins, as your Lord, as your king, if you believe in Jesus, that day will bring great joy. But you know, to believe in him, that doesn't mean just to have knowledge about Jesus. Yeah, I believe that, yeah, I believe that there was this dude named Melchizedek that I'd never heard about before, that there was this guy named Jesus, and I believe he was the Son of God, and I believe he rose from the grave, and all of this stuff in your head about knowledge of who Jesus is. What the Bible says is that is, that's not enough. Because James declares, even the demons believe, and they shudder. And they shudder because they know that the day is coming when King Jesus will get up out of his seat to bring in the final judgment and bring in the fullness of his kingdom. And it is essential that you know which side you are on. Because there is no in-between. Either you are for him or or you are against him. Either you worship and serve him, or you stand as one in his way to be conquered. There is no fence sitting. There is no, yeah, well, I kind of believe that. Yeah, just kind of, if he could just leave me alone. You know. If you are not for him, you are against him. And King Jesus will rise up to usher in the fullness of his kingdom. And unless you become a part of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, then yes, you stand to be destroyed in his final victory. But today is not the day of his wrath, as Psalm 110 verse 5 declares. Today is not the day of his wrath. Today is the day of his mercy. Today is not the day of his judgment. It is the day of salvation. And the reason why his wrath has not come upon us or upon you yet is because it is is his mercy that holds that in check so that none would perish, but that all would call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today is the day to decide which side you're on, because there is no in-between. And may today be the day that you call upon the Lord, not only as your Savior and Rescuer, but as the one who is the King of your heart, the boss of your life, the one to whom you follow. The priest's work is completed. The king's work will be completed. Do you know what that means for us right now in this in-between time? It means that his servant's work has begun. Verse 3. It says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Hebrew in this verse is not clear. 
Um, your Bibles probably have a couple different translations of this in terms of the exact wording. But what is particularly clear is that when Jesus is on his throne, and when Jesus gets up out of his throne, there will be a host of people who will offer themselves freely into his service, who will offer themselves freely, devoting themselves to the king. And as Christians, what this psalm is, a thousand years before the birth of Jesus Christ, what this psalm is, it is a call to engage in war. It is a battle cry. But where is this battle and what are the weapons of it? In 1100 AD, Pope Urban II gathered together a group of mercenaries. And he gathered them all together to begin what was the first crusade. And he gathered them all together and he said, if you're going to go do this work of the Lord, you have to be baptized. So he created a giant baptismal pool for them. And what he said is you have to be baptized and you have to walk through, walk through the baptismal pool. But there was a condition. is that they were allowed to submerge themselves in the baptismal pool, but they were allowed to take their sword in their hand and hold it out of the water as they went through that every part of them would have been baptized except for the weapon of destruction. And with that, they could do whatever they wanted to with that hand, just not the other hand. And so after they came through the water of baptism, Pope Urban II stood before the crowd of mercenaries and he declared, he said, soldiers of hell, today you have become soldiers of the living God. And he sent them out. I'm going to become one of the greatest scourges on the name of Christ in the history of the world as the Crusades began. That the war to which Christ has called us and which he summons us to is not a war of flesh and blood. You know, it happens in modern times as well. As Christians decide, try to use the things of this world, the power of this world, to bring about the kingdom of God. And it doesn't work. It doesn't happen. We are not called to be engaged in a holy war, in some sort of Christian version of a jihad. We're not called to do that. We're not called to use the weapons of this world for the advancement of the kingdom of God. No, rather, the battle that we are facing and engaged in is far more ferocious. As Ephesians 6 tells us, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that there is a war that is being raised that is more real, that is more ferocious, that is more consequential as it holds the souls of the people, their eternal destinies in, in stake. And there is a battle between two kingdoms, between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of evil. That is the battle that we are called to and the battle in which is being waged. Not a battle of flesh and blood. Well, if it's not a battle of flesh and blood, what are the weapons of this war? It is not with the carnal weapons of this world, but rather... As Paul writes, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. He goes on to declare, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to demolish strongholds. Well, what are these weapons? It's the word of God in prayer. The word of God. Does that sound weak to you? I think it sounds weak to many of us because our words are weak. Our words don't have any power. I mean, there's no inherent power in the words that any one of us 
say. But that is not the case when God speaks. For let me remind you that it was the Word of God that cast galaxies into creation, that created galaxies that flung them to the ends of the universe. It was the Word of God that separated the mountains from the seas. It was the Word of God that rose people from the dead and upended the Roman Empire. It is the Word of God that brings conversion and transformation to hearts of stone and turns them into hearts of flesh. It is the Word of God that converts academics, atheistic, antagonistic, opposed to Christian academics like C.S. Lewis, and through the Word of God being at work in their life, converts them into the biggest advocates of the Christian faith. It is the Word of God that is at work in other academics like Rosaria Butterfield, who lived a lesbian life for many years, leading national leader in the LGBTQ national uh, um, advocacy. And yet the Word of God continued to be at work in her heart. And do you know what happened? Her own testimony is that after the Word of God was at work in her heart, it set her free. It set her free to be who God made her to be. It set her free to be the fullness of all that God had for her. And it was the Word of God that was at work bringing this about. And as Hebrews declares, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the hearts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The Word of God. The other one is prayer. Not meditation, they were to meditate on the Word of God, but prayer as a weapon of God's kingdom to advance the kingdom of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, which we began to see a minute ago, where it talks about the armor of God, it is prayer that is the final piece of God's armor that binds the whole thing together. And in prayer, we pray things like, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is prayer as a weapon of God's kingdom. And I ask again, does that seem weak to you? Does that seem weak? Honestly, sometimes in my life it feels that way. But let me remind you, let me remind myself that it is through prayer that the kingdom of God advances. It is through prayer that God uses our prayers actually to advance his kingdom and to bring about his transformation. It is through prayer that God changes and transforms people like Abby Johnson, who we heard at the Karenet Banquet a couple weeks ago woman who was the director of the largest Planned Parenthood clinic in America, who herself says that she was personally responsible for the death of over 20,000 babies, some late-term, some post-term abortions. And what happened was that day in and day out, there were Christians outside her window praying for her, praying for her. And what happened is that one day she comes out of her office after particularly something that she had seen, and she comes out of her office and she walks to the place where she'd seen Christians praying for her for days and weeks and months and years, and she says, I was wrong. And I don't know where else to go to but to you. And she accepts the Lord Jesus as her Lord and Savior and becomes an advocate for the unborn to bring life and to expose the lies that she herself was bound into to experience and to know the freedom of God. It is through prayer that the kingdom of God is advancing around this globe. You know, 100 years ago, there were some, something like more than 20,000 unreached people groups in the world. Now there are 3,200, according to the IMB. 3,200. 
That means through the prayer of God's people, through your prayers, that mission can be accomplished in our lifetime. That the kingdom of God can expand to reach people of every tongue and tribe and nation because the people of God are using the weapons of God for the purpose of God to advance his kingdom. Our work has begun. Our battle has started. And it behooves us to ask the question, do you know how to use your weapons? Do you know the word of God and how it applies in your life? And if you don't, we'd love to help you with that. Are you one that uses prayer as a weapon to advance God's kingdom, not just for your own personal individual needs and your individual struggles that you have, but that you would use prayer to advance God's kingdom to the ends of the earth, and he hears those prayers, and he answers them? Followers of Christ, servants of the eternal king, Our work has begun. I hope you see that in this psalm, David is is jumping up. He is bolting out of his seat to declare the the, the incredible truth that the work of the priest is now finished. And that, yes, the king's work will be completed. And that right now, our work has already begun. So like David, let us commit ourselves wholly to Jesus Christ, who is our eternal priest and our eternal king. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would give us insight and understanding. And Lord, moreover, that you would drive these truths into our hearts, that it would motivate us and inspire us and convict us, Lord, that we would live for you that we would rejoice that the the work of Christ is finished and there is nothing more than we, we can add to it, but only to embrace what Christ has done on the cross. And Lord, we long for the day when his work as king will be completed and there will be no more mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things has passed away. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. And until that day comes, Lord, may your spirit move us to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.